Hi everyone, I'm Perry. I'm really glad that we could all be together in the room this morning to worship, even on a cold, snowy day, and even under the conditions that we're in, just with the the struggles that we're facing in our community. I, I wanted to give you an update. Um, Pastor Tom, Pastor John are not here today, so I drew the short straw, and that's why I'm up here this morning. But um, I wanted to give you an update on things that we have done as a church, just so you're aware of where we've been and maybe have a little idea of where we're going. Um, before I even get into that, though, let me just say, in a situation like this, it's kind of normal, even though it's uncomfortable for us, it's what we don't like, but it's kind of normal for us to have more questions than answers, and that's kind of where we're at here, too. But let me give you uh, just a recap of where we've been so you know What's gone on since Thursday? Thursday evening, we opened the building here as a potential evacuation site for families in the area. We only had a couple people who stopped by during that time, and they were all on their way to other homes in the area to spend the night. So we did that on Thursday night. Friday morning, as a staff, we gathered together a list of all of the names of people who live, who we know in the burn area, the areas that were being affected, and we called them. For us at the Boulder campus, that was around 40 households just under that. So we made contact with people. And at this point, we know that there are four families in the Boulder campus who lost homes. So actually, that's it's three families and one at the Erie campus who lost homes. So four in our, in our church family who did. Many others have been displaced, as you can imagine. Um, power's been out. Gas has been turned off. So many people are still in a state of flux right now. Um, local area pastors and faith leaders gathered. I had, had the privilege of being a part of that on Friday afternoon. We were able to meet together, to pray together, to talk with community leaders as well and to go over ways to collaborate where we can make a larger impact together than we can individually. So there's more to follow on that as well, but just want you to know that as a church, we're looking at the capital C church and how we can make an impact together during this crisis. Uh, Calvary set up a webpage, calvarybible.com. You see it right there, forward slash fire, but even if you just do the .com part, you can see a button on our website that you can click that will take you to this website here. That's a place where you can let us know if you need help. But it's also a place where you can offer help if you would like to. And I'm just happy to report that so far we've had about 100 people who have responded saying, hey, I can help. We've had almost 50 people who have responded saying, hey, my home is available if somebody wants to stay with me. It's a beautiful picture of everyone's generosity and just the spirit that we have of love towards each other. In the meantime, though, we pray. We pray. This is a time for us to be the church. We are the church dispersed. Not all of us were impacted equally by this. But we were all impacted in some way. We all know people who were impacted, maybe in our workplaces, maybe in the schools, Maybe in some other area of our lives, we know people who were impacted in some way, shape, or form. And this is a beautiful time to sit and to listen to people. Maybe a great question that we could ask people around us is simply, how were you impacted by the fires? And just listen and give them space to talk about it. Those can be unique opportunities for us 
to share the gospel in a way where they may not normally be open to hearing about the gospel. But this is a wonderful time for us as a church to go out and to feel like we are all ministers of the gospel because that's what we are, in fact. And this is a time for us to do that, a time for us to engage and love the people around us. I wanted to share something that was pretty remarkable to me just yesterday when I saw it. It's a post from one of our members at Calvary who lost their house. And I'm just going to share a snippet of it because I want to keep it anonymous here. And if I can read it, it will tell me this. Um, It's very likely that we have lost all of our stuff, but it was just that, stuff. Everything else can be replaced. God is good, and he has been holding us fast in his unwavering arms. His promises are true, and we are clinging tightly to them. We are so very thankful for all of you and your support. We're blessed beyond measure. You just ask, where does that kind of resiliency come from in our faith? If we've learned anything the past couple of years, it's that we need a resilient faith. If we've learned anything the past couple of years, it's that we don't know what this year might be like. I remember last year at this point thinking, whew, 2021 is behind us. Now we can get COVID out of the way and move on with our lives. Most of us thought that by this time we would be past that. Of course, we all know we're not. Just a week ago, just four or five days ago, we had no idea what would happen and unfold in these recent days. We have no idea what's coming in this new year. So how do we have a faith that can withstand whatever happens in this new year? Just so we're all on the same page, when I say resilient, here's what I mean. Not the Marshall Fire. This is what I mean. Able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions, that's one way you can think about it. Another way you might think about it is this way, able to recoil or spring back into shape after bending, stretching, or being compressed. Anybody here feel like you've been bent, stretched, or compressed by this past year and especially this past week? As we look in the pages of Scripture, we see all kinds of examples of this resilient faith. One example that we're going to look at more in depth this morning comes from Psalm 73. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. The world may fall apart around me. But God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. Where does that kind of faith come from? As we're going to see this morning, that kind of faith does not come easily, and it did not come easily for the man who wrote these words. The man's name is Asaph, and again, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 73 if you have not already. Psalm 73, written by Asaph, this man who is a director of worship. He's a man who's on stage and up front, 
He's a man who is supposed to have it all together. Somebody who's supposed to be able to lead other people in worshiping God. Somebody we would expect to say these kinds of words. But Psalm 73 is a very vulnerable psalm, as it is a time where Asaph exposes his inner feelings about a season in his life where these words were not so true of his own heart. So this morning, we're going to look at where does a resilient faith come from, and we're going to let Asaph be our tour guide. Here's what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Of course, of course God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is Asaph. He's writing around the time of King David, around 1000 B.C., Again, the man who's up front on stage like I am right now, of course you expect him to say those words. You could almost think of these words just being almost mindless because it's just so well rehearsed and programmed. But yet, in verse 2, we see this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Throughout Scripture, The journey of faith is presented as just that, a journey along a path that is narrow, along a terrain that's rugged and unstable. And Asaph says, I had this point in my life where I had nearly stumbled. I had almost slipped. He was like unsettled by life's journey. Something had happened. We don't know the details, but something had happened in his life that caused him to not be so stable with his foundation of faith. What is it? For I was envious of the wicked when I saw the prosperity, or envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's what Asaph saw with his eyes that caused him to almost stumble. None of us knows what we are going to see this year. But the question is how do we see in a way so that our faith does not crumble underneath us? How do we see in a way so that we can see properly from the right perspective so that our faith remains intact? In Asaph's case, he was envious. It says it here that God is good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph's heart, though, is full of envy. He looks at what other people have and he wants it for himself. Rather than a pure heart, Asaph's heart is far from that. It's impure. And not only that, this word prosperity here is the word shalom. It's the word that is sometimes translated peace. When Asaph looks out, all he can see is shalom that should be for those who are God's people. Those, the the things that should come, the wholeness, completeness, the peace that should come to the righteous is instead going to a very different destination. And Asaph is getting tripped up over it. He's going to go on now and elaborate what he means. Here's what he saw with his eyes. He said, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. These, these are some difficult phrases to understand, but likely what's going on here is fatness can also mean like calcified, like a hardness. The eye is thought in the ancient world as a mind or a window into the soul. This is like a hard heart or a hard soul. It's become calcified. So that's what their eyes are like, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Just hear the boastful words that are coming out of their mouth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Probably a reference to how people are gathering around them because they're so prosperous, they're so successful in life that it's just attracting attention from other people. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Asaph's conclusion. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. These are people who, when Asaph looks out, he sees well-manicured lawns. He sees well-funded retirement accounts. He sees well-behaving children. He sees a life that is whole and complete with no kinds of problems. Remember, Asaph had told us just previously that he had almost stumbled. His feet had nearly slipped. He's not in the right frame of mind as he looks out. When he looks out, all he sees is this black and white world. Everything is good over here. Everything's bad over here. And I happen to be over here. Of course, it's an oversimplification. Asaph is not seeing as he ought to see. What he's seeing is simply not completely true. There might be shades of truth to it, but it's not true in a whole. But as Asaph looks out, he can't stop with this conclusion of these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. What do you think happens when we get to that place? Our problem may not be Asaph's. We may not have a problem with envy as we look out. We may not have a problem this morning as we sit here with thinking that, oh, it's the people who don't follow God that are getting all of the good stuff in life. But we might have a different kind of problem that could lead us into the same place. Where does Asaph go from here? Well, let's pick back up. And he says these words, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That last line there is probably a reference to the fact that Asaph is a leader. Asaph, like I've said, is a man on stage. He knows that this is a struggle for him, but this is a private struggle for him. Because if he speaks up, this would cause other people to stumble along with him. Have you ever felt that way? where you have a struggle that's private with your own faith, but you know that you can't say anything because if you were to speak up, the people around you, your children, the people in your life group, the people in your class, the people in your Bible study might stumble along with you. That's the, the position that Asaph finds himself in. But he finds himself in this crisis of faith that's even more deeply. 
So if we look at 12 and 13, we see this, this just struggle between these are the wicked, his conclusion, what his eyes have told him, always at ease, they increase in riches, and all in vain have I kept my heart clean. It's the contrast between seeing and believing. What we see with our eyes is something that we cannot help but have affect our hearts. We even have that expression, seeing is believing. A a good magician can show us that we should not see, or should not believe, rather, everything that we see. But a good magician can also show us how difficult it is to not believe things that we see. But right here, we see that this is what Asaph is looking at, and this is the effect it has on his heart. But again, this may not be our problem. We might have any number of other issues that we see with our eyes, things that we're not even aware of now that will happen in this next year, in 2022, that might also cause us to arrive at the same conclusion. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. Behold, my health is failing. Behold, my finances are in shambles. Behold, my relationships are just struggling everywhere I look. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. This raises the question of our expectations that we have for the Christian life. What do we expect life to be like as Christ followers? But it also raises the question of whether we're even seeing from the right perspective. Let's look at where Asaph goes next. Asaph says, when my soul was, or rather, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It's the key phrase here. Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. He can't make sense of his situation. He cannot make sense of his predicament. He can't make sense of what he's seeing with his eyes and how his heart is responding with this lack of faith, how his heart is responding in in a crisis of faith. When he looks around, he cannot understand it with his mind, but then he goes into the sanctuary of God. We have some remarkable people in our church. I just want to point that out in a number of different areas. One of those areas, though, has to deal with some pretty cool technology. Uh, we have had people at Calvary who have played really critical roles in a couple of really critical scientific endeavors. One would be the Hubble Space Telescope. Here's just one example of a shot that was taken from Hubble, and there are you know, thousands more that you can go look at on the Internet. Just an incredible window into our universe Hubble is in an orbit about 340 miles above the Earth's surface. It's outside of the clutter of our own atmosphere, and from that vantage point has this ability to look deeper into space in a way that's just incredible to even comprehend. Just recently, a few days ago, there was a launch of another satellite, the James Webb Telescope, that is going to be parked not 340 miles away from the earth, but a million miles away from the earth. Also, there's a connection at Calvary to that project. And it will look even deeper into space, see even more beautiful and majestic things, assuming everything goes right. But it's on its way there right now. 
And it shows us, just as an illustration, the importance of our vantage point. Not only what we're looking at, but how we're looking at it. That's what matters. How are we seeing what's in front of us? Now, the good news is we don't have to go into space in order to see the right way. What Asaph does is he goes into the sanctuary of God. What does he see there? What happens in there? We don't know. We don't know what he encountered. Was it a vision? Was it just the encouragement of being in a place where other people had a stronger faith in that time than he did? Maybe it was just that he was reminded of the truth of God's majesty, God's wonders, God's provision, and God's presence over his life. The sanctuary represents that. It is the place of God's presence. And once Asaph goes in there, everything else changes. The clearest view of his life came once he entered into the presence of God. The clearest view in our own life comes when we enter the presence of God. We're going to see how everything changes in Asaph's perspective now once he does that. Let's keep reading. Here's what Asaph says about the wicked, about these people who he was envious of before. And again, we could insert our own issue, our own dilemma into it about the circumstances of our own life. But here's how it's completely recast once he's entered God's presence. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph is saying that it's like all like a bad dream. It's like you have the bad dream that you wake up from. Maybe you're even sweating and you're just in a panic. And then all of a sudden you realize it was just a dream. And maybe even a minute later, maybe even 30 seconds later, you can't even remember what the dream was about. That's what this new perspective on the, the wicked people around him has done for Asaph. He can see now that this thing that has just consumed him and overcome his heart is something that in God's perspective is just like that. It's totally changed the significance of everything. But not only of the problem itself, but it's totally changed the significance and the perspective that Asaph has on his relationship with God in the past, in the present, and in the future. Let's look at that next. Here's what he says. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That word ignorant literally means stupid. Like I was out of my mind back when my feet had almost stumbled, when I had nearly slipped. I was not thinking clearly. I was like an impulsive, irrational animal. And now I see that after I entered into your presence. That's what he sees about his past. Now about his present, he says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. It's ironic that Asaph had to go into this place that represents God's presence on earth in order to recognize that God's presence is not limited to that place. God's presence is everywhere around him. There's no escaping God's presence because Asaph knows he is continually with him at his right hand. How would all of our scenarios and situations in life be different if we recognize that God is near us like this? 
What a marvelous picture. You guide me with your counsel. God is not far off, distant. God is there leading him by the hand, guiding him at every step that he takes. And then finally, towards the future, it says, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. My friends, we do not know what will happen this year. We don't know what kinds of good things, blessings. We don't know what kind of difficult things, challenges that might come our way. But we do know the one who is with us at every step. We do know the one who is continually with us at our right hand. And we do know that no matter what happens this year, that the trajectory of our lives, if we follow Jesus, is this. That he is leading us to glory. That nothing can get in the way. Nothing can sidetrack that. Nothing can be an obstacle to that that's insurmountable. That God is leading us to this place of glory. All of that came to Asaph once he entered the presence of God. All of that was what he was reminded of as soon as he entered there. And we wrap all of that up with this summary that we began with. How do we get to the place of a resilient faith? It's by entering God's presence. This is where Asaph then says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything that I have, my health, my possessions, my prestige, my status with other people, everything should be held with open hands. And when you're in that position of holding it with open hands, your faith is untouchable. Your faith is like bulletproof because you know that the one thing you have is the one thing you're clinging to that can never be taken away from you. My flesh, my heart may fail, okay? But God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. Earlier, Asaph had said that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The ultimate purity in this case is a purity of heart that is focused exclusively on God. This is what Asaph has, and this is the resilient faith that we need in our own lives as well. You know, as I think about this expression, it reminds me of another statement in Scripture that's in Philippians that the Apostle Paul speaks, where he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost to me. Not my pedigree of my status that I was born into, not my accomplishments and becoming a Pharisee and achieving all of these great things in terms of status in and around the temple area. That's all lost to me. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. That's the kind of faith that we need in this next year. That's the kind of faith that's resilient in spite of whatever might happen, whatever might come our way. That's the kind of faith that I'm desperate for myself. And it's the kind of faith that I pray that we would all have and share together as well. Asaph concludes this way. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. But as for me, 
It's good to be near God. It's good to be near God. Earlier he had said, but as for me, my feet had nearly stumbled. My feet had almost slipped. And now, after he's entered the sanctuary, the presence of God, he can say with great confidence, but as for me, it's good to be near God. When you go into the sanctuary of God, you're not going in there to bury your head in the sand and to try to ignore life's problems. Quite the opposite. What we're doing when we enter the sanctuary of God is to view life's problems from the right perspective. That's what it's all about. We don't know, again, exactly what Asaph saw, exactly what happened when he went into the sanctuary. But think of the ways that we might enter God's presence this year. We might pursue it together. We might pursue it individually. Hopefully, every Sunday morning, this is an experience of entering God's presence. Hopefully, in our life groups, our classes, our Bible studies, that those are also experiences where we enter into God's presence Hopefully on our own, when we open God's word just privately every day, that that is also an experience of entering God's presence. When we go before the Lord in prayer, that those are experiences of God's presence. Anytime we gather together as believers for fellowship, those should be experiences of God's presence. And this is not a one-time thing. This is something I know in my own life I need continuously. I need it all the time because I see things with my own eyes that can easily be from a perspective that does not support and strengthen my faith. I need God's presence to remind me of the right perspective. The perspective of being near God is where I get that. We're going to take communion in just a minute. If you did not get a chance to grab one of these cups, I would encourage you to do that now. They're out in the lobbies. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to transition into that time of communion together. Father, we are just grateful for the fact that you are near us. We said earlier at the start of the service that you're near the brokenhearted, that you save the crushed in spirit. And Lord, as we are gathered together this morning, we trust that you are near us as well. Father, we know that that nearness is what we need. That that nearness is, Father, that gives us the perspective to be able to view this current circumstance that we're in right now. The tragedy of the fires, the tragedy of unexpected circumstances, Lord, that have devastated our community. I pray that we would see it from the right angle. Lord, I pray, God, that, that you would just embolden us to be able to meet the need of this moment. And Father, we just count on the fact that you are with us, that you are near us at this time. And Lord, help us to draw near to you now as we enter into this time of communion. Pray this in your name. Amen.